Salutations from space. And welcome to the Storytelling Podcast with your host and celestial navigator, Gemini Brett of More Than Astrology. Here, the myths and legends of old will be used as fuel to launch the rocket ship of our consciousness into the cosmos. We will begin by honoring the ancient traditions of spoken transmission by listening to an old starry story told anew. Then we will set the controls to treasure hunt as together we seek to unravel the hidden gems of cosmological, astronomical, philosophical, astrological, and mystical wisdom wrapped within these wispy webs of words. All aboard! It's time for liftoff, so strap yourself in and let us begin! A god is born, or Hermes steals the herd, or seven strings for seven sisters. The seven daughters of Pleione and Atlas, who held the sky from the earth, were cast into the heavens to protect them from the relentless pursuit of the hunter. However, that hunter, Orion, still chases these seven stars we have come to call the Pleiades to this very day, yet he will never, ever catch them. The brightest of these seven, the eldest and most beautiful sister, Maya, gave her name to the flowery month of spring called May, and to the great Jupiter she gave a great and flowery babe, Mercury, a crafty young lad who was far too crafty, far too inquisitive for the confines of a crib. So on his very first day, Mercury snuck away, first ingeniously fluffing his blankets so the wood nymphs who were looking after him would not notice his absence, then sliding then crawling, then walking on his own two feet away from that Mount Clemeny cave into the light of a sunny day. Oh, how he laughed! Oh, how he sang! Oh, how he chorted with glee! Oh, how he danced! How he jumped! How he spun on his feet! Until suddenly he came face to face with a tortoise. As soon after that tortoise left its shell, leaving the boy with his very first toy. First it was a spinning top, and then a battle helmet, then it was a sled, and then, and then it was a drum. As Mercury allowed his fingertips to dance along the 13 hexagons of that tortoise shell, a beautiful rhythm came forth. He lost himself into that rhythm as if it was playing him, as if it came from the grace of the great beyond. Suddenly his consciousness began to expand beyond the limits of his body, beyond the limits of our earth, our solar system, our galaxy, into the infinite eternity of the cosmos. And he knew that he was all that is. As above, so below, Mercury on the first day of his life was left with nothing left to know. One of the new things that Mercury knew was that a certain spell would make his tortoise shell sing. So he danced while he drummed and went looking for strings. But before he could find, it would seem he was found by a tune on the breeze, and he followed the sound to discover his brother, Apollo, the sun, who was jamming along to Mercury's tortoise drum. Now Apollo was serving a punishment. 
He had been sentenced to live a year in the middle world as a mortal shepherd in service to an earthly king for having committed a crime I'll tell you all about some other time. Mercury was about to charge in and say hi until he looked past the sun and noticed his prize. Fifty white heifers grazed on grassy ground and he knew what he sought could be found in a cow. He hid for a bit in his brother's bright beams to gather his thoughts and sketch out his schemes. Then quick, like a thief, to his feet for his chance. With one hand keeping the beat that kept the sun in a trance, with the other and a laugh, he grabbed the magical staff and the herd had no choice but to follow him as he led them away. He almost gave himself away because he was giggling so gaily, but the cold trickster mind took hold. He remembered he had to cover his tracks, and he did so brilliantly. He walked them for a time in one direction, then stopped them, and moved them backwards in retrograde through the exact tracks they had already laid. Then using the bark of a nearby oak, he fashioned shoes for their hooves in his own feet. And they walked printless in a new way towards his mother Maya's Mount Clemeny cave. And just then, it began to rain. Mercury fashioned for himself a coat from one of the cow's hides as he cut to find its insides, for its stomach would provide seven silver strings that he stretched across his tortoiseshell drum to create an entirely new instrument. And as he began to pluck them and to strum them, it became quite clear that on the first day of his life, Mercury had brought forth the greatest musical innovation of all time. This was no drum. This was no horn or flute. This was the mother of the violin, the father of the lute. Even today's pianos and electric guitars know who their great granddaddy is. And Mercury didn't take the time to name his creation. He was too busy playing the most beautiful music ever heard. And speaking of herds, well, he hid Apollo's cows away in a pasture far from the road. Forty-eight of them, that is. For two, well, they would never grow old. Their hides were hung by the door of Maya's cave as Mercury walked inside, playing and playing this beautiful music that put his mother and the other nymphs in a trance as he quietly crept into his crib undetected. With a giggle, for he had gotten away with it. No, he hadn't. Apollo might have been serving a year as a mortal shepherd, but he was the sun. The god of divination, of the oracle. He threw some stones, cast some lots. They told him just where he needed to go. The hides near the cave's door confirmed he was right. And he charged in in full solar flare mode to find a bunch of wood nymphs and a one-day-old baby in a crib. Case closed because everybody knows wood nymphs don't steal cows. He charged the crib. Maya intercepted him. What are you doing? He said, that baby stole my herd. She said, what? He's a one day old baby. I mean, he couldn't even leave his crib, let alone steal your cows. You're crazy. He said, admit it, child. But he can't even speak. He's one day old. But speak Mercury did. And he lied. I didn't take your cows, he said. But then he erupted into a giggle that turned into a laugh, into a chortle that made him cry. He gave himself away. Apollo was ready to dispose of this liar, 
But Mercury played his silver stringed shell and quenched the sun's fire. Apollo fell to his knees in disbelief. What was this sound? For the solar master of music had never heard a chord. Harmony had been born. What is it? What do you call it? How did you make it? How do you play it? And Mercury said, this thing? Are you like it? Yes, like it. I'd do anything for it. Name your price. Hmm, a trade. Let's see. Well, how did you find me? I threw lots. I cast stones. Divination. Teach me that, and you can have this instrument, and you can name it whatever you want. A deal was made. Apollo instructed Mercury as requested. The instrument was handed over, and he played, strummed. So lyrical, I will call it the lyra. Actually, let's name it after you. I call this the liar. They had a chuckle, and all was fun and play until Apollo asked what had happened to the cow whose hides hung outside the door of the cave. Well, one had to be slayed for the strings of your lyre. The other I filleted and sacrificed to the gods. Its fat burned on the pyre. A sacrifice to the gods, Apollo asked. For Mercury had just invented that as well. Yes, to appease their anger. Well, just in case they were angry about the first, I killed the second for them and divided its meat into twelve equal sections, one for each of the gods. But there's eleven of us. Oh, well, of course I ate my share. You, a god? Stealing is one thing, lying another, but this blasphemy will not be tolerated. Apollo grabbed Mercury by the scruff of his neck and flew him up to Mount Olympus. He said, Father, Jupiter, I know I'm not meant to be home, yet my sentence is not complete, but this child stole and lie and now blasphemy. He claims he's a god. And Jupiter says, is this true, son? And Mercury said, yes, Father, I did steal and I did lie. I apologize. I was just having fun. And look at all the stuff I got done. I created harmony. And I've seen the cosmos. And did you call yourself a god? Yes, Father, but give me a chance. I'm fast and I'm smart. I'm crafty. I'm better with animals than that guy. And I'm great at commerce and trade. See what I got for the instrument I made. And I'm fast, and I'm crafty. I could be your messenger, Father. Give me a shot, Jupiter said. I will, but you have to promise you will never lie like that again. And Mercury said, I can, cannot promise I'll tell the entire truth. And Jupiter said, we would never ask this of you. So Mercury was issued his traveler's cap, his caduceus staff, his boot with wings, his veil of mystery and given rights over animal husbandry, travel the crossroads, commerce and trade, with the mysteries, and perhaps most important to me, the high art of astrology. We give our respect to Mercury, Hermes, Trismegistus, Thoth, Dehuti. Hermes steals the herd. Thank you for joining this maiden voyage of the Storytelling Podcast wherever you are in space and time. This is Gemini Brett of morethanastrology.com. I'm recording this from my home in Seattle, Washington on Saturday, May 30th, 2015, around 10 a.m. Okay, for those of you who are astrologically inclined, it is 9.55 and a half a.m. 
And Mercury right now is Kazemi, in the heart of it. Mercury exactly between the Sun, Apollo, and us, Earth. But before we go into that space, let me first say a quick word of gratitude and give a deep bow to the musicians who contributed to this first episode. You heard from Elijah Parker playing handpan and djembe drum, his song Core Stability from his album Prime Gifts. And there was a bit of a wooden Apollo flute overdub by some guy called Gemini for the sake of the story. The second song, and on guitar, or the electric lyre, was Masuru Hagasa and Utoto, a song Moss titled Kisses in the Rain from a live sound journey he recorded in Seattle earlier this year. You can find more of Elijah at OneDoorLand.com and more of Moss at MasaruHagasa.com. Those will be linked below as well as ScreensTheBand.com because I will end this show with a song from the West Seattle psychedelic band Screens called Maya. Maya, the brightest and most beautiful star of the Pleiades. Maya, who chose to live in a cave. Maya, the mother of Mercury, Hermes. A quick mythological note, it is often the practice to interchange the Roman and Greek names. In this storytelling, I chose to go with the Roman Jupiter instead of Zeus, Mercury instead of Hermes because we still call the planets by their Latin names today. However, you'll hear me exchange, interchange those as we move forward. And of course, also, these stories have been told by many poets of old and new, and they're not always the same. Clearly, I've embellished some parts of the story, perhaps even added a thing here or there. I haven't ever read of Mercury's Samadhi experience where he consciously journeyed into the cosmos. But I've been reading the Hermetica, the Corpus Hermetica, which is said to have been penned by Hermes himself. I want to read to you a passage from this ancient text. To know Atum, you must share his identity, for only like can truly know like. Leave behind the material world and imagine yourself immeasurably expansive. Rise out of time to eternity. Believe that for you nothing is impossible. See that you are immortal and learned in every art and science. Be at home in the haunts of every living creature. Make yourself higher than the highest and deeper than the depths. Embrace within yourself all opposites, heat and cold, hard and fluid. Think yourself everywhere at once, on land, at sea, in heaven. Imagine yourself unborn in the womb, yet also young and old, and already dead, and in the world beyond the grave. See that everything coexists within mind. All times and all places, all things of all shapes and sizes, then you will know Atum. If it is possible to talk to the substance of Atum, then mind is the very divine substance, although only Atum knows its precise nature. Mind is not separate from Atum, but emanates from him, like light from the sun. In human beings, mind produces divinity. Through mind, some become godlike, for as Osiris teaches, gods are immortal men, and men are mortal gods and women are mortal goddesses. This is from a modern translation by Timothy Freak and Peter Gandy. The book is The Hermetica, The Lost Wisdom of the Pharaohs. I imagine this word mind they're using is actually a translation of nous or nous, a word that I translate to be consciousness. But there you have it from the words of Hermes himself riding up into space. <laughs> but before we do, let's start here on Earth. Let's go into the cave. 
Maya chose to live in a cave, did she not? In some earthly caves, we find some of the most beautiful and oldest artistic images known. The caves in the south of France, in Spain. You know, it said Pablo Picasso coming out of the Spanish cave called Altimira said, after Altimira, all is decadence. He was so astounded by the beauty of the painting there. The famous painting is that of the bull. Some say his words, we have discovered nothing. Or that, he said, we have invented nothing in 12,000 years. That last one sounds a little bit suspect. Not quite artistic enough for Picasso. And so we have to be careful not to believe everything we read on the internet, right? But there is some very valid information on the World Wide Web. I found my way to some pretty interesting academic papers and research for this podcast. One was a paper by a German man named Alexander Wachter that's called The Pleiades in the Sol de Tarot, Grotto de Lascaux. Does a rock picture in the cave of Lascaux show the open star cluster of the Pleiades at the Magdalenian era, circa 15,300 BCE? I'll link that paper below. It's a very interesting study in archaeoastronomical investigation. And Wachter's thesis is that this image was painted at a time when the Pleiades were aligned to the spring equinox, and that the many animals surrounding the bull in this cave are like a depiction of an ancient zodiac. Another academic paper I will link below was written by an Italian woman named Emilia Sparavigna. It's called The Pleiades, the Celestial Herd of Ancient Timekeepers. And she mentions how many of the old civilizations would start their calendar by the rising of the Pleiades or align their agricultural practices to the Pleiades. This was a thing with the old calendars. The Egyptians, for example, would start their calendar, the Sothic calendar, with the heliacal rising of Sirius. A strange term, that heliacal rising. But it's important for our current investigation of Maya's cave. So let me tell you what this means. As the sun moves through the constellations of the zodiac during its annual course, spending about one month in each constellation, stars disappear and then reappear. They disappear because the sun is getting so close to them that they are lost to the sun's glare. The Hellenistic astrologers call this falling under the beams of the sun. And this happens with planets too. Say when the sun from our view is passing a planet. Mars is a great example right now. In March, Mars was very bright in the sunset sky. And then as the sun from our view began to pass Mars, Every day, getting closer and closer, Mars begins to descend, getting lower and lower every sunset. And finally, it gets so low that it's too bright out to see Mars. Mars is lost in the glare of the sun. It falls under the sun's beams. In shamanic astrology, which is the stock of my starry stew, this paradigm visioned forth by the great sky astrologer Daniel Giamario, we call this the planet descending into the underworld. For we imagine this is how the ancients would have viewed this. I mean, here's Mars. Mars is getting lower and lower in the sky, and then suddenly he's gone. So he's disappeared from the world stage. Where did he go? He must have gone into the underworld. And then as the sun moves through space, through the constellations of the zodiac every day, moving about a degree further, finally it gets far enough from Mars in this example that we can see Mars again, but now it will be in the morning sky. It comes back from the underworld, it comes out of the sun's beams, and this is called the heliacal rising. 
in this example when Mars is first seen again in the morning sky, the rebirth of Mars, coming back from the underworld, coming out from under the beams. And by the way, that will happen this year around August 5th, 2015. So this happens with stars too. Every year, the sun approaches Sirius, and when it gets so close that Sirius falls under the beams, the dog days of summer begin. Sirius, the dog star, disappears for about 70 days each year, and then reappears with its heliacal rising, its rebirth in the morning sky. And that's what the Egyptians would set their Sothic calendar to. It happened to coincide in those days with the flooding of the Nile. Many civilizations set their calendars to the rising of the Pleiades. In Hesiod's poem, The Work in Days, he mentions many times how the Pleiades are meant to be used as the sign for when to plant and sow. But Hesiod, the Greek poet, wrote this 3,000 years ago. And it would no longer work today. This is because the stars slowly move, slowly slip against the seasons of the year over time. So if we were to farm according to Hesiod's instructions, using the Pleiades as our sign today, we would not do so well. This slippage I mentioned, it's due to what astronomy calls the precession of the equinoxes. Plato called this the great year. It's a deep study. It's deeper than we want to go on this first storytelling show, but it is also relevant to Hermes stealing the herds. So very briefly, the motions of Earth. We have our spin in 24 hours. This creates days. We orbit the sun in a year. This creates the year. The axis of Earth is tilted, and this creates the seasons in our annual orbit when the axis is pointed towards the sun. Summer, away from the sun. Winter, in between, perpendicular to the sun. Spring and fall. There's this other motion of the Earth. Astronomy attributes this to gravitational effects on the equatorial bulge of the Earth by the Sun and the Moon, creating a wobble of about 26,000 years. This is called precession of the equinoxes, this wobble. And what happens is the stars slowly shift through the seasons. That's probably as far as we want to go into the technical aspects of precession for now. I will devote entire episodes to this phenomena in the future. It's a very interesting investigation. It's imperative to many of the old starry stories. And I'll say Yukteswar, Yogananda's teacher, claimed that it was not 26,000 years, but 24,000 years, and that it was not due to gravitational pull by sun and moon, but by the truth that our sun is orbiting another star. It's an interesting investigation for us to take some time. The Mayan calendar suggests that the great Mayan astronomers were looking to a period around 25,000 years. And again, we'll go into that space some other time, but for now, I'll just say that true to its name, precession of the equinoxes, the stars shift, slip, backwards against the seasons over this great amount of time, which for now we'll call 26,000 years, the great year. Because precession, this means a backwards movement. We've all heard, this is the dawning of the age of, right, of Aquarius. And we're dawning into the age of Aquarius from the age of Pisces. We dawned into the age of Pisces around the time of one common era as we shifted from BCE to CE. We shifted from the age of Aries to the age of Pisces. About 2,000 or 2,100 years before that, we shifted from the age of Taurus to the age of Aries. So it moves backwards. Now, some of the old 
tellings of this Hermes steals the herd story say that the strings for the lyre came not from the cow's stomach, but from a ram. And many of the old stories show rams in bowls together. This makes a lot of sense cosmologically, astronomically, because in the sky, the ram and the bull are side by side. So with Mercury walking the cows backwards in this starry story, there might be a gem of cosmological wisdom speaking about the transition from the age of the bull to the age of the ram, which happened about 2,000 years ago. But clearly there's also astronomical implications, and this will be the source of today's astrological investigation, Mercury moving backwards this is Mercury retrograde. And moving the cows backwards, well, Mercury every now and then will move backwards in the constellation of the bull near the seven sisters who in Egypt were called the seven Hathors, Hathor the cow goddess. So I believe this story talks about a Mercury retrograde period aligned to the constellation of the bull. And you may know that I chose this story to begin our maiden voyage with because that is happening right now. Mercury retrograde in the constellation of the bull. But in the seasonal sign of Gemini, because this effect, the precession of the equinoxes, has shifted the constellations from the seasonal signs. This perhaps causes the most significant divide between sidereal astrology, which is practiced um, by Vedic astrologers, Yodish astrologers in India now, and tropical astrology, which is the Western system that bases the signs on the seasons. We will go deep into that space in other episodes. But this is also why you'll hear me call the constellations the bull and the ram and the fish instead of Taurus and Aries and Pisces, because for Western astrologers like myself, the seasonal signs are no longer aligned to the constellations that were traditionally associated with them. For example, if you were born a Scorpio in the Western system, having a Scorpio sun, it's very likely that the sun was actually aligned to the constellations of the scales, which were traditionally associated with Libra. My Scorpio sun, having been born on October 24th, is actually aligned to the constellation of the priestess, or the virgin, traditionally associated with Virgo. I know that gets confusing, and again, we will go deep into that space in future episodes, but for now, back to Mercury retrograde, and we will look at Hermes steals the herd through an astronomical lens. There are many astronomical elements in this story. Mercury is a planet. Jupiter is a planet. Apollo is the sun. Maya, the brightest star of the Pleiades, who, remember, were cast into the heavens to escape the ceaseless pursuit of the hunter. That is Orion. And if you know the sky, Orion rises every day after the Pleiades do. Club raised, chasing the bull, but he will never catch them. The Pleiades on the bull's back set before Orion does. And the next day or night they rise in that same configuration. It's never changing. He is always chasing them. I'm very interested in Maya's cave in this story because I believe it's describing the time of the year when the Pleiades are under the beams of the sun or in the underworld. Every year the sun approaches the bull, approaches the Pleiades. It gets so close that the Pleiades are lost to the sun's glare. That's happening right now. And this time on Earth, this happens in May. So Maya in the cave. And then Jupiter visits her there. Ovid tells this best in his Metamorphosis. A beautiful poem, but he talks about how Jupiter visits Maya in the darkness of her cave, away from the ever-watchful gaze of his wife, Juno. That was Hera in the Greek. So Jupiter moves through the constellations of the zodiac 
every year. He said 12 years around the entire path. So it's about one year per sign or constellation. And I feel then that astronomically, the story is describing a time when not only the sun by season was aligned to the Pleiades, which happens once a year, but also a time when Jupiter in his 12-year cycle went to meet the sun and Maya there under the beams in the cave. And who was born of that union? Mercury. So astronomically, then Mercury, who moves very fast, would come into the cave and be born from it. This happens astronomically every cycle with Mercury coming out of the beams of the sun into the western sky. So Mercury in his path from our view moves behind the sun as he approaches, he disappears under the beams, and then as he passes, he reappears in the western sky and rises for a brief amount of time there until he stations retrograde. Okay, retrograde. This is just like cars appear to be moving backwards as we pass them on the highway. When the Earth passes an outer planet like Mars or Jupiter, it appears to move backwards through the constellations of the zodiac. When an inner planet like Venus or Mercury passes us, it appears to move backwards. So Mercury retrograde literally means that in space, Mercury is passing Earth in their mutual orbits. It's actually the time when Mercury is closest to Earth, and we'll get back to that. So in this story, okay, the seasonal time when the Sun aligns to the Pleiades, Jupiter, who only every 12 years could meet them there, and then Mercury comes in, is born from their union, shows up in the western sky, does the whole cow thing, and then walks the cows backwards. This is Mercury moving retrograde, most likely in the constellation of the bull, or very likely close to the seven sisters, the Pleiades, who in Egypt were called the seven Hathors. Hathor being the cow goddess. Mercury walks the cows back to Maya's cave. Apollo finds him there. They have their argument, but then their trade. And then another argument with Apollo angry at Mercury calling himself a god. So Apollo takes him up to Mount Olympus to see Jupiter. So astronomically, what would have happened is that during the course of Mercury's retrograde, the sun would have moved far enough past Jupiter that Jupiter would have had heliacal rising, coming out of the beams of the sun, out of the underworld, out of the cave, showing up again in the morning sky. Then Mercury's retrograde takes him not only back into the cave, but then also out of it, Mercury's heliacal rising, where Mercury and Jupiter would have been together in their morning sky for this meeting where Jupiter issues Hermes his traveler's cap and winged sandals, and ever since he's been our messenger. There's one more element, which is the hides near the cave's door because there's another cluster of the bull constellation right next to the bright red eye of the bull, Aldebaran, and they're called the Hyades. It's the V that makes the bull's face. They were half-sisters of the Pleiades, mythologically speaking, also daughters of Atlas. So I don't know Greek or Latin, and I'm not sure if there are etymological links between the Hyades and Hydes, but I cannot escape the synchronicity of their sounds in this English language. So you see how these old stories actually embed cosmological, astronomical wisdom. They're not just fairy tales. Actually, that's a bad way to express it because there's cosmological, astronomical, mystical wisdom hidden in the fairy tales as well. Why? Perhaps to preserve these ancient truths for coming inquisitions? Or perhaps because 
this information is best transmitted simply through telling the story. That what I'm doing right now is not really necessary. What we want to do is just tell the stories, hear the stories, and somehow the wisdom is passed over. Well, this investigation might not be necessary, but it's fun for me, and I hope it's fun for you. A decent time to plug the show. If you're enjoying yourself, please like the Storytelling Podcast on Facebook, sign up for the RSS feed, give it a five-star rating on iTunes, do all these things that will help promote the show and my work so I can keep at it. I would love to hear some feedback if you've got some comments or some advice or if there's stories that you would like to journey into together. Please, please, please send that along. And you can find more about me and my work at morethanastrology.com. Okay, back to our study. One element of the story that I inserted was to speak about the 13 hexagons on the tortoise's shell. Now, the old stories do tell us that the lyre was made with a tortoise shell, but they don't mention the hexagons. I do not only because I'm a fan of sacred geometry and the golden number. If you know about this, then you know about the Fibonacci sequence and the 13 hexagons on the shell and in pine cones and pineapples and the nautilus and all of these things. And we'll probably go into that space another time as well. But I mentioned specifically the hexagon because there is an asterism in the sky called the winter hexagon. An asterism is basically a super constellation made of many constellations or stars from many constellations. And the winter hexagon is made up of Castor and Pollux, the stars of the twins, the bright stars of the twins, Procyon, who is the little dog, Sirius, the big dog, Rigel, which is Orion's left foot, Aldebaran, the eye of the bull, and then Cabela, which is a star of the charioteer. Together they make this kind of hexagon in the sky or a great circle. And it's a very important place of the sky because it's one of the only two places where the Milky Way crosses the ecliptic, the constellations of the zodiac, the path of the sun. One place is just between the only astrological glyphs or the constellations associated with the signs whose glyphs have arrows. Those glyphs are Sagittarius, which is an arrow, and Scorpio, the M with the arrow coming off of it, right? And where the constellations traditionally associated with those signs are in the sky, the arrow of the archer and the tail of the scorpion point as arrows to the exact center of our galaxy. Now, I feel this is a deep expression that the ancients knew a lot more than we give them credit for. So one intergalactic center, that is one place where the Milky Way crosses the ecliptic in the exact opposite direction in the midst of the winter hexagon between the constellations of the twins and the bull right above Orion is this other place where the Milky Way crosses the path of the sun. And so it's looking exactly away from the center of the galaxy. This is galactic anti-center, and it's a very important place to many of the traditions. The Mayan shamans draw a triangle there that surrounds the smoke of creations. There are mystery school traditions that say this is the silver gate. It's the place where our souls come from. And that the other side, that galactic center, is the golden gate where our souls go. The Lakota of America say that this winter hexagon, this circle there in the sky, is called the sacred hoop. And that our souls both come from and return to that place. And there are many great stories embedding this wisdom. And we will certainly journey into that space further another time. And so this is why I referenced the hexagon on the tortoise shells, because where Mercury retrogrades with the cows or walks the cows backwards would have him right in the midst of this sacred hoop, this very important place of the sky. 
So there's the astronomical, and how about the astrological? Mercury retrograde. I mean, the most popular time, perhaps, for astrology, because even folks that don't follow astrology often hear about Mercury retrograde. And it's this huge fear-based thing, right? Don't even try to communicate. Your words won't work. Your computer will blow up. All of your travel plans will get screwed up. And this is the worst time you could ever sign some kind of contract. I love that I woke up this morning in the midst of the Mercury retrograde and two friends sent texts that they're both buying land today. So many of the fear-based Planet police astrologers would say that is the worst idea ever. On top of that, the moon is currently void, of course. Are you crazy? And what an idiotic time for an astrologer to create a podcast. I mean, using technology? Using words? Nuts. But no, it isn't. So how do we get out of this fear-based practice of Mercury retrograde? I think it's very important we do. First, why do we fear retrograde periods? Because the ways of the astrological old do have a rather fear-based or negative approach to retrograde planets. Well, I believe this is because they didn't understand why a planet would go retrograde, and we tend to fear the things that we don't understand. Now, if you're using a geocentric model of the solar system where the planets orbit the Earth, there is no way to explain a planetary retrograde. And the astronomers of old came up with all sorts of incredible methods to try to explain this phenomenon. Epicycles is one of these. But none of them worked. Once we figured out that it's a heliocentric solar system, now we can explain retrogrades, as I did before, right? This is happening when the planets pass each other. When the Earth passes an outer planet, or an inner planet like Mercury passes the Earth. So, we no longer have to fear this because we know how it works. So, I think it's time for us to shift out of a fear-based practice with Mercury retrogrades. And understand that in the retrograde cycle, this brings Mercury closest to Earth, the one time of his cycle. Mercury is very fast. He speeds around the sun in 88 Earth days. This is called Mercury's synodic period. But because the Earth is also moving, these alignments between Earth, Mercury, and Sun, like the one that is happening right now, they happen on average every 116 days. Mercury 88 days to get where he started and then another short amount of time to catch up to the Earth, which has also moved. 116 days on average. This is called Mercury's synodic period. Multiply 116 times 3, you'll see that you get a number pretty close to 365 days. So there are three Mercury synodic periods a year. And in that synodic dance with Earth and the Sun, Mercury's pass of the Earth happens for about three weeks' time. So Mercury is retrograde for about three weeks, three times a year. Which is one of the reasons that one of Mercury's names was Hermes Trismegistus, Hermes Thrice Great. And it is said that this was not just some mythical god, but an actual being who left writings behind, the Corpus Hermetica, which in a sense was rediscovered in the 1500s. I'll read to you the preface from The Way of Hermes. In the year 1460, a monk brought a Greek manuscript to Florence, the monk Leonardo of Pistoia was one of the agents that the city's ruler Cosimo de Medici had sent to scour Europe's monasteries for forgotten writings of the ancients. And what he now brought his patron was a codex containing 14 treatises attributed to Hermes Trismegistus, an ancient Egyptian sage. This work's arrival caused a great stir because Hermes identified with the Ibis god Thoth, was held to be older than Plato and Moses, and the underlying inspiration of all philosophy and religion that followed him. 
Cosimo immediately instructed his scholar Marsilio Ficino to suspend his project of translating the complete dialogues of the divine Plato so that he might undertake a translation of this even more significant work. And speaking of translating the works of Hermes, it would seem this is where astrology came from. At the turn of the millennia in the city of Alexandria, Hellenistic astrologers like Vedius Velens were looking back into older works by seemingly mythical characters like Nechepso and Pedosirius, who were referencing Hermes. And some of the works of Hermes seem to suggest the system was defined when the Pleiades were at the vernal equinox point, and precession of the equinoxes suggests that was like 2300 BCE. Older than most would believe Western astrology is. The Vedic astrologers also begin their lunar mansions, the nakshatras, of which there are 27. The first lunar mansion begins at the Pleiades. So it would seem that time, 2300 BCE, was very significant to astrology. And really, it could have been 26,000 years before that as well, or 26,000 years before that. Okay, maybe that's getting a little bit crazy. But as long as we're getting crazy and mystical, let's hear from Hermes' writings. This is from the Hermetica, from a writing called The Universal and the Particular. The human body is an earthly temple. Constructed by the power of the zodiac, which makes myriad forms from simple archetypes, there are twelve signs of the zodiac, and the forms they produce fall into twelve divisions. They are, however, inseparably united in their action. Nature makes the human body so that its constitution resonates with the patterns of the stars in such a way that they mutually affect one another. That they mutually affect one another. So Hermes, Thoth, Mercury himself is telling us that we affect the stars and the planets as much as they affect us. Of course this is true. As above, so below. This uh, translation from other works of Hermes, the Emerald Tablets of Thoth. As within, so without. Everything is relationship. So my great question is, what sort of relationship do we have with Mercury as not only a planet, a ball of rock up there, but in my feelings, a very conscious being? When during these retrograde periods, we are living in such a fear or superstition of Mercury and even scapegoating him and pointing fingers at him. You hear this all the time from astrologers of the planet police. My car broke down, it's Mercury's fault, or here comes Mercury retrograde, we better back up the computer. So my feeling is that the planets miss us in our relationship. I mean, even astrologers who know so much about the planetary energies and the psychological archetypes are typically looking down at a chart or maybe looking in the eyes of a client, but seldom looking up to the sky. And that I feel the evolution of astrology really wants us to reconnect visibly in our relationship to the planets. These are not just glyphs on pieces of paper. These are living beings in the sky. So if you were sitting here, I would look into your eyes when I speak with you. Why should I not do this with Jupiter or with Mercury? So here's Mercury who for three weeks at a time, three times a year, here's his name called. It's like, oh, they're talking to me again. And what, they want me to break their computers and mess up their travel plans and make them express poor decisions and communicate terribly? Okay, if that's what you want. I hope it serves you. And my feeling is that 
knowing, in the words of Hermes himself, that we affect Mercury as much as Mercury affects us, then it is us who are, in a sense, inviting or even programming Mercury's energy, which exists within us at these times of retrograde, to go crazy. And that it's time to turn that around and start requesting that consciousness, travel, communication, commerce and trade, and other items mercurial actually be emphasized and supported during these retrograde periods when literally Mercury is as close to Earth as it gets. And my feeling then is that if planetary proximity has anything to do with the way that their consciousness participates with our own, then a retrograde period when that planet is closest to Earth should make that planet stronger. And especially at this time called Kazemi, which is when the conjunction of Mercury and Sun comes to us, Mercury exactly between the light of Apollo and the Earth. It's said that, indeed, the planet is strengthened. So let us correct our approach to Mercury retrogrades. I speak more about this in a movie I posted recently. You can find at morethanastrology.com. There's a movies tab, and I, I put up a movie called Don't Get Played by Mercury Retrograde. Play along. And I'll speak more about how I'm currently playing along later after this cycle is done. Because the way that I'm playing is to have asked Mercury, Hermes himself, to support the birth of this podcast, which clearly I'm timing to Mercury's solar conjunction. In the middle of the retrograde period, when so many astrologers would say that's the worst time to do it, I don't believe this is true. And one of my teachers, Gary Caton, has showed me another reason why Hermes is called the Thrice Great and suggested ways that we can work with this cycle to support us. And again, I'll share that later, especially once this cycle is finished and we see how this podcast does. So it's been recorded and planned and mapped to these very significant times. Does that guarantee success? Probably not. And again, that's where you come in. So I ask you, again, please support the podcast. Please give it a like. Please give it the five-star rating. Please comment, share, send your advice. I would appreciate that so much. I've got one more thing to share before we close down this first episode. And that's to get back to Maya, the mother of Mercury. Isn't it interesting that Mercury's mother, Maya, has the same name as the mother of Buddha. Now, Maya, etymologically, means mother. It also means meter and measure. But in the Buddhist traditions, that word, which speaks to magic, is often used to describe the illusion of our reality, or what we tend in the parlance of our times to call the matrix. But Buddha is the enlightened one. So does this not suggest, if Buddha's mother is Maya the illusion, that enlightenment is born from the illusion? And I believe this is what Hermes is telling us again and again in his writings as well. This is from one of my greatest teachers, who unfortunately I will never meet, and this is Alan Watts. (laughs) who says Sanskrit doesn't really have a word for matter. It has namapura, which means named form. It's the form that matters, or let's put it another way, everything is a matter of form. From the same talk that I will link below, Watts says this when he's talking about science's attempt to find all that is with instruments. As you make more and more powerful microscopic instruments, the universe has to get smaller and smaller in order to escape the investigation. Just as when the telescopes become more and more powerful, the galaxies have to recede in order to get away from the telescopes. 
Because what is happening in these investigations is through us and through our eyes and senses, the universe is looking at itself. And when you try to turn around and see your own head, what happens? It runs away. These are the teachings of Hermes that as many of the mystical teachers from many paths have taught as above, so below, as within, so without, that we are that. Our consciousness, our knowness, is all that is. So again, to know Atum, you must share his identity, for only like can truly know like. Leave behind the material world and imagine yourself immeasurably expansive. Rise out of time to eternity. Believe that for you, nothing is impossible. See that you are immortal and learned in every art and science. Hermes, born of Maya. Buddha, born of Maya. The illusion is the mother of enlightenment. So here's to Maya. And here's to you. Thank you for joining this maiden voyage of the storytelling podcast. I have dreams of where we will journey together in the future. I very much look forward to bringing guests onto the show, perhaps opening phone lines so we can all communicate together. But for now, it's about getting the tech ironed out and making sure things are running smoothly and spreading the word. And again, that's where you can help. Please give the like and the stars and leave some feedback and share this with your friends. You can reach me directly at morethanastrology at gmail.com if you'd like, or find out more of what I do at morethanastrology.com. There's writings there. There's a blog. There are many movies posted at a movies page. You can come play the moon game, find out about what that is there, and look to the events page to see where I'll be traveling around giving presentations. I like to move around the earth visiting the sacred sites and speaking about these starry stories wherever I go. And I hope to see you at one of those locations here on this fine earth. In the meantime, I will see you in space. This is your friendly astronaut Gemini Brett signing off. Let us together listen to the sounds of West Seattle's own screens with Maya. You just turned five. Say higher. Glad you're alive. We wish we could buy a ticket to come fly.
ticket to come fly Let's go. 